Welcome to Tripping Over the Barrel, a series that highlights the unique personalities within the oil and gas industry and the stories they have to share with your hosts and lead storytellers, Tilo and Dr. Funkenstein. Andrew Dennett. How about that, Tim? Wow, I'm not I'm not sure uh if if uh the kids know what that is a reference to the <laughs> Panther theme there. <laughs> So, so Jeremy, I got, I got some questions for you. So this will be kind of, you know, I know you've, most of your time is spent, you know, kind of in the lower 48, but yeah. So where is the tallest building in the world, the tallest dancing water fountain in the world, the biggest indoor ski slope and the largest man-made island shaped like a palm tree? I mean, uh, Sounds to me like you're talking about Dubai, maybe? Yeah, Dubai. That's one of the United Arab Emirates. And uh, you know, we've had, in all of our podcasts today, we pretty much had a North American vent to it. You know, we've really focused on that and you know, consciously wanted to expand out just a little bit and, and class up the place with a, a better set of accents. So we, I wanted to bring in Andrew. Andrew, I've known him for a good five years now. Um, he got uh, stuck with me on my first international trip to UAE and he had to host me and my boss uh, take us to Kuwait and around UAE. And, you know, in our downtime while we're waiting on meetings, had to throw us in a mall for a couple hours while he got on some phone calls. A very, very gracious guy and great host taking us around. But the one thing I learned about Dubai and UAE in general, if you're going to build something like a shopping mall or a, uh, uh, an island it has to have an est on the end of it and uh the funny thing was is we're sitting in a at a just before a big conference in abu dhabi and andrew and i were having dinner and he points to a building and it's a building that literally it, it looks like it should be falling over and he said that is the how do you say it andrew the leaningest yeah i think it's the most leaningest building that probably isn't how you should say it but, it, but it'll do yep another, yeah, so, another, piece, uh, another piece of est so Andrew Dennett uh, is uh, obviously British and uh, lives in UAE and works for Emerson. And uh, we wanted to bring him on. He's going to have a decidedly international flavor compared to what uh, Jeremy and I usually talk about. So Andrew, why don't you give us a, just a little bit of background about you and then uh, we'll jump in with some questions. Hey guys, thanks for that, uh, Tim, Jeremy. And it's a, a real pleasure to be here and uh, spend some time with you. So thank you for the opportunity. Um, I'm a chemical engineer, as you said, I'm British from the UK, and I graduated chemical engineering and did what all the, all chemical engineers do. I got a job working in a bar for a year until I figured <laughs> out that that, that wasn't going to work for my wallet or for my liver. And uh, so I, I found myself pretty much by accident working in a, an automation company. It was a private American DCS instrumentation company that then uh, later on got, got bought by another company, a German company. And I spent a lot of time selling safety systems. And so naturally that led me towards customers in, in the hydrocarbon industry. And and when the company got bought, as I said, by a big German company, that um, there was a culture shift that I wasn't that comfortable with. And I was a single guy in my early 30s. And I had the opportunity to relocate to Abu Dhabi uh, in the Ooh. UAE. So I did. And uh, that was almost 20 years ago now. So Four months later, the accountants in the German company decided that you didn't need a sales office where the customers were because the orders are placed through the EPCs in Korea and London and Rome and wherever, right? So um, we pointed out that unless you spoke to the customers and, you know, 
got yourselves on the vendor list and got preferred, then no orders were going to flow. And they said, well, we understand that, but we're still going to close the sales office. So, so there I was in the, in the Middle East, four months in, uh, no job. And um, one way or another, I, I ended up 2003, I joined Emerson. And apart from a couple of years in Austin, Texas, along the way, I've been in the Middle East ever since, pretty much. And for the last, I, I spent a lot of time in the Middle East for most of that. And the last couple of years, I spent a lot of time in Africa with a, a role, sales director in, in Africa role. So I spent a lot of time there. And the things I've learned, well, apart from anything else, I've learned the Middle East is not the Middle East and Africa is not Africa. You can't make generalizations about you know, any, either of those huge areas. Uh, as I like to say, all generalizations are, are wrong. And uh, that's <laughs> probably one of them. <laughs> so, okay. so, yeah. So, so, yeah, go on. 20, 20 years in, in effectively in, I'm going to say the Middle East, but in, in living UAE, in basically, yeah. UAE. And I've been going there for five years, you know, basically once or twice a year for five years. And I've noticed, you know, just landing in Dubai and driving to whatever hotel I'm staying in that time, everything changes from year to year. What's it been like just in the 20 years you've been there? It has to be astounding amounts of change. Well, so so where I live now was the desert and the Mall of the Emirates, which is where the, the really big ski slope is, that was the desert. And the Burj Khalifa, the world's tallest building, on top of Dubai Mall, which depending on how you measure malls, is the world's biggest mall, that was desert. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's it's astonishing. I, I, I find myself... I have to stop myself because, you know, if people come to, to visit and I go, yeah, that was sand and that was sand and this was all sand. And it you know, gets kind of tedious after a while. But the pace of change is amazing. That those, so I left, I left Dubai in 2004, summer of 2004, to move to Texas. And I moved back in April 2006. And while mm-hmm. I was gone, they built this development called Dubai Marina. And there was like one part of the development was a single contract to build 40 or 50 40 or 50 story buildings one contract was that bit of it another part of the contract was to build a world-class marina another part of the contract was to build all the infrastructure and it was all done while i was away so i left and it was flat sand and i came back and there was like a city and in the same time in fact it's slightly longer because i first went to austin in the december of 2003 in between December 2003 and my leaving Austin, they kind of built half of a freeway intersection. And in less than that time in Dubai, they built a city. So it, it's amazing wow. just, just how much has, has changed. And, wow. and you know, yeah, go on. No, that's, that's exciting. I mean, and, you know, even more exciting about that is that you uh, were in the United States then for the historic Red Sox uh, comeback against the Yankees and first World Series victory and. Uh, 85 years. So yes, uh, very, very exciting. And, and, if, and if I just refer you back to that whole thing about my being, my being international, which, but you know, by extension, the word world comes into international, uh, because nowhere else in the world is is that particular game played. I didn't even know. <laughs> Man, I've got I've got so many questions as it relates to cultural stuff, as it relates to sports, as it relates to con- contrast and selling. Uh, I, I think I, I want to start first with with just just life, right? Uh, what is it? What does the day to day life look like outside of work, right? When it's you and the wife and the dog and the kids, and it, you know, what do you do, right? It, it's it's hot outside. There's a lot of man made stuff. Give me a give me a sense, man. What is it like? Well, it's just. Uh, I guess the thing is, that it's um, 
so I go back to what I said about you know the Middle East is not the Middle East. I live in the UAE, which which I really enjoy, and different countries in the Middle East have different levels of, uh, of tolerance and inclusivity. So where I live, it it would look very similar to. I'd imagine if I, well, not imagine because I used to live there, but if living in Austin, living in Dubai, at first glance, isn't that different. So I live in a, I live in a, a community. We have a, a, a bar just over the road. I have a four by four that uh, wasn't made in America, but could have been. The thing is, you said also about the heat and you're right that in, in the summer, it is, it is, it is quite, it's quite hot. You know, I like, uh, in Texas, in Houston, particularly, people say it's very hot and humid, and and uh, and it's not. You guys don't understand. It's uh, it's warm and it's a little bit damp. Here, like like you go to Kuwait, you go to Basra, it regularly touches fifty five centigrade, which is what's that about one twenty, one twenty five. Fifty is one twenty two, so so I'd say it's one thirty, one thirty five every every summer. It'll get to that. And I remember one time I was driving back from uh, I was driving from Dubai to Abu Dhabi it was midnight it was 36 centigrade which is what 97 Fahrenheit and I was doing 95 miles an hour so 95 miles an hour midnight 97 Fahrenheit I've got the windshield wipers on because I'm getting condensation on the outside of the windshield <laughs> at 95 <laughs> miles an hour <laughs> so it, it gets yeah. kind of, it gets kind of humid but the thing is it, it's not like that all the time right it's in the for six months of the year the weather is just beautiful i mean it rains three days a year on average sometimes it's four sometimes it's two but you know we get we we get rain most years and apart from that clear skies you know clear blue skies perfect perfect weather so it depends it depends on the season right this time of year you you either want to stay close to a pool because the sea is far too hot to swim in it's um it's uh you know well above body temperature in the in the ocean Yeah, Um, in Kuwait, I went and stuck my feet in the water. Just I was at whatever hotel I was there, and go. Hey, look, there's there's a water. I'm going to go stick my feet in, and it was absolutely wow. There is no relief there at all. (laughs) No, if you imagine, imagine swimming in an enormous bath of fresh piss. That's pretty much what it's. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, Uh, you said it, it was like. You know, you compared it Dubai, especially to kind of being in Austin. So there are times when you're you're walking around in or in the desert, wherever, and it feels like okay, hey, I'm I'm in a typical kind of Western city in UAE. But then there are those moments that bring you right back and remind <laughs> you right away, okay, yep. I am not. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, know. absolutely I, right. So so one of the things that gets me is, uh, and and I I didn't hear about this for a couple of years after I got here, and it's still a big thing in Abu Dhabi. They have a camel beauty pageant that they take really seriously. Really expensive camels get judged for how attractive they are. And, and yeah, that, that doesn't happen in Austin, best I'm aware. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the thing that gets me is that this whole country is, is slightly younger than I am. And I'm still making some choices far worse than the ones I see here. And what gets me is, is you know, what they've achieved. And some people go, yeah, but it's money and oil. You know, I don't want to name any, but there's some there's some shithole countries out there that have money and oil. Money and oil doesn't doesn't mean you're going to do well. And and going back to that whole city of Est thing, which is which is all part of the ethos of the of the UAE, is that this country understands that it needs people to do well, so it is inclusive and tolerant, and it wants to be the best and wants to be seen to be the best. And working working and living in a country where the government wants you to do well, I think is is no bad thing.
but you're right that there are there are certainly things that are not like the West. Like, um, yeah, I, I, well, I, I I'll give you Yeah, go on. Yeah, sure. The example that came to my mind was one of my trips. I was there for a weekend, and you decided to take me out in your four by four, and we were going to mm-hmm. go up and down some sand dunes, take some pictures, uh, maybe drink a, a carbonated uh, beverage um, that, on that a mountain been, top that, or something that, that had been fermented. From, well, it could have been fermented. I didn't want to go there too far with it, but no, anyway, we're yeah. we're parked on the side of a rocky granite outcrop, sand dunes all around, and we're just sitting there drinking our uh, fermented hops and barley, and uh, four wheelers, just you know, guys on four wheels driving by, and and you 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 just think, okay, hey, it's just uh, guys out at the lake, you know, driving their equipment, and uh, you know, just like you would see if if there was a desert right outside of Austin, what it would look like. And then you look and there's one of the guys on the four wheelers is, you know, fully in his white, stark white robe, contrasting against the sand, riding a four wheeler. And it's just, okay. Yeah. All right. I, 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 I'm fr- I forgot where I was for a little bit. Now I'm right back to where it's just, awesome. and as a Westerner, you know, we obviously we don't see people walking around in the typical Arab robes, but, to see some, you just don't expect someone on a four wheeler to be wearing a robe, you know. Yeah, just no, having a good time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and I I, I got a, a buddy um, in uh, in Kuwait. Uh, I think you probably met him, Yasser, right? And oh yeah. And almost almost every time I've seen Yasser, he's been wearing the traditional, like say, the thobe, the dishdash, the uh, the traditional Gulf um, dress. And the thing is. For him, that's just what he wears. Now, one thing he says is packing for a business trip for him is really easy because you just you know count the days, count the robes, you're done. There's, there's no like which that. shirt goes with like which that. tie, right? Right. <laughs> yeah, takes out a lot of decision making, right? Yeah, absolutely. Do you, do you wear do you wear sandals like flip flops, or do people wear shoes with that with that with the getup? Uh, they typically they wear sandals. Yeah, it's just yeah. it's just that hot. You know, this is um this is fun. Tim and I are on. I've mentioned this before, but we're on Facetime, so we can see each other. And sometimes we're like, "Who goes?" But we both have so many questions right now. We're like, "Me, me, I got a, I got a question." So this is this is a little bit of, cur- of a curveball here. But uh, I'm a Jewish guy. It's the only place in the Middle East I've been to was was Israel about oh my god 20 something years ago 23 years ago and we went to jordan for a little bit and and it was really it was really special you know certainly for me to to get over there the weather's uh, fantastic and my question for you is this what, what is the um relationship like for um for jews living in the uae is it a comfortable place is there tension um what is it like okay so that is that is a curveball and a, and a question i'm gonna have to try and handle diplomatically um yeah, yeah so, please do. so what what i would suggest is that is that the the governments and the people in the middle east in general uh recognize a difference between the country of israel and the religion of judaism so jewish mm-hmm. people are referred to as the people of the book because of course if you you know the great trilogy um the uh the the torah the bible the quran all refer it's all the same the same story different parts of the same story different perspectives but so jewish people are respected however israel is in general regarded as an illegal occupation of palestine and so that obviously that can lead to tension so while uh, and, and the other thing i'd say as i said at the beginning is that different countries have different um different 
levels of of tolerance and different approaches. So you might find that in some parts of the Middle East, uh, it would be it might even be difficult or impossible to get a visa to travel hmm. if re- if religion was requested, which I, I believe it is requested on Middle Eastern visas. Whereas in other parts, uh, you'd be welcomed and um, there would be you know there'd be no issue. Hmm. Um, yeah, so it's it's as I say that the, the as I understand it, the big difference is between the religion and the country. That's I appreciate that. Really interesting. I mean, because I was just curious, right? I haven't been over there on a business trip, but it's certainly something I would ask, uh, you know, people that are there and people that are here. Is you know, d- does it make sense for me to go, or should we send a uh, a Christian dude like Tim, a gentile? <laughs> a gentile. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah, I, 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 I think it would depend very much on the the country you were visiting. Now, the other thing is one of the other interesting differences. There's a great book called Don't They Know It's Friday? Because, of course, the weekend here is uh, Friday, Saturday. It used to be Thursday, Friday, but oh. Friday is the the universal day off here, like like Sunday in the West. So this book is aimed at the the person coming out to the Middle East to take their first role working in the Gulf to understand how the culture works here. And it's also aimed at the manager sending that person so they understand why they shouldn't be asking the customer to respond on a Friday. And one of the points that uh, that they make in the book is that uh, it's very much about the culture over here is very much about you, you don't talk about anything important until you know that this is a person you get on with respect and trust. So the idea that you would you would turn up at ten o'clock in the morning to talk about a big deal, business deal, was uh, made no sense to the guys out here when when we first started trying to do that decades ago. Because they'd say, "Well, I'm going to meet the guy, and if I like him, I'll maybe invite him to dinner. And once I understand how he feels about family and and so on, life, and, and that I respect him and I I trust him, then we'll talk about business. And if that's at ten thirty at night, so be it. If it's the next day, that's fine too. Why would I? Why would you expect me to go talk about software or solving a problem at 10 in the morning? Because it's 10 in the morning. Makes no sense. <laughs> and, and, you know, logically, actually, it does make no sense, but it seems to work. Anyway, a real shaggy dog story way of saying that uh, one of the things you'll find is that it, whereas, you know, there, it might be legally, you're legally allowed into the country, um, you know, religion notwithstanding, you might find then that you, do, you talk to somebody whose personal views are such that they wouldn't be able to get over a difference in religion potentially but it doesn't it doesn't just you know it doesn't just look at the difference between um for instance muslim and and uh judaism it it could also be between sects within a religion so absolutely you know if you're one one type of even if you're a, a follower of one strand of islam then you wouldn't want to meet or do business with someone from another strand of islam so it's a lot of it is personal more than institutional i think but but also if you if you build a personal relationship then the the other things you know don't get in the way so much because if if one person knows they can tr- they respect and can trust the other then interesting things can happen regardless of of the labels yeah and then also you've got the religion thing and there's also uh, a lot there's a lot of women in the workforce in UAE especially and, you, and Saudi we're finding as well. Um, well, Saudi's. I, I was going to go there a little bit. That it's it's increasing for sure. But in in UAE, the one of the first times you know, yeah, 
you see that there's a professional woman that is going to be in the meeting or near the meeting. And as a Westerner, your first instinct is to run out and throw your hand out and uh, <laughs> to learn the little dance of, is this woman going to shake my hand or is she Ooh. not? That yeah. was, it was a little, it was an interesting dance to try to figure out. And, you know, and I, my first trip to UAE, I was not going to offer my hand to anybody uh, unless their hand came out first. But my boss, Sebastiano, just charged at this one woman with his hand out and her, she was backing up and had her hands across her chest just to, you know, hold, hold. And I, there's, a, there's this moment of, oh, so, I mean, I guess from a cultural perspective, you're obviously, Andrew, you're, you're moving around the Middle East and not to generalize, but yep. there are differences in all of these countries and even amongst the sex and the genders, you know, how, what have you gotten into trouble that way? You learn school of hard knocks or how do you get through all that? No, I, I well, I, uh, I don't think, I don't think I've got into trouble. Uh, <laughs> in, in general, I think that, um, the, the women that don't want to shake a man's hand are used to Westerners coming out and putting their hand out. <laughs> so, you know, as, as you said, that, that lady put her hand across her chest. Now, it turns out that if you, and um, this probably won't work well on a podcast, but if you kind of put the flat of your hand in the, uh, in the middle of your chest and kind of nod your head, that is, that is a greeting and a respectful gesture. So it might be that what she was actually doing was that rather than trying to run into the room behind her. Um, well, because that, it was, because the, it was the speed to me. It was yeah. the speed at which Saber was coming at her. I was like, "Oh, <laughs> yeah." So, so for sure, though, yeah. It, I think what you what your your approach was the right one. Wait until wait until the hand is offered, and, and yeah, you probably don't go in for a hug either. It turns out that maybe <laughs> COVID is going to help all of us, right? Because now no one shakes hands anymore, so so we're all safe. <laughs> yeah, it's it's going to be interesting to see if it's if it's fist bumps. Which, frankly, I'm I'm fine with. I actually remember going back to college. Uh, being in, uh, it was called the the Boulevard, where everybody had lunch, and I remember uh, like putting my hand out to like slap somebody five, and he's like, "No, we do fist bumps at lunch," and I just adopted that. I'm like, "Yeah, why not? Like, I don't really want to shake your hand when I've got like ranch sauce yeah. for my chicken chicken ranch wrap on it." Um, so, <laughs> really, uh, really enjoying this this podcast, Andrew. Uh, we love to talk about food on this pod, so I'm curious what what are some of the amazing food specialties or um, I guess the things that really stand out to you from the uh, culinary cuisine where, where you live? Well, so, so the first thing is, um, is that part of the approach, part of the appeal of the UAE is that they, they try to attract, you know, est in this case, the best cuisine they can. Mm. So we, we have international restaurants from, from all over. Uh, so it doesn't matter what cuisine you're after. If, if you're, if you want, you know, a fantastic, Japanese restaurant yeah we got that yeah. we got some amazing Italians all that good stuff um and uh, and also f um some of the most astonishing buffets I've ever seen uh someone once said to me what's it like living in in Dubai and I said well it's like being in Vegas but with no gambling more money and nicer hotels <laughs> so uh, <laughs> nice that's cool um now you did, and, that, Andrew. You did take me for furry ice cream. That was a new one. Yeah, yep, furry ice cream. So yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. So uh, not exactly um, as billed. It's it's essentially ice cream with cotton candy on it. But when you first see it, it looks like a big plate of fur. But when you dig into it, it turns out <laughs> the ice cream underneath. So I always enjoy that. And you know the um, the local the local dishes they 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 cook with uh, you know different 
herbs and spices, I guess, from from maybe what we're used to in the West. A lot more lamb, uh, some, a lot of chicken, but you know, lamb is kind of the delicacy because it's it's a more expensive. If you're if you live in the desert and resources are scarce, then a lamb is a big deal. So, sure. um, a lot more mutton. Um, the the whole thing where you you cook you 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 dig a hole, light a fire. Then you put the sand over the top, and over yeah. over that you they wrap the rice around the mutton, and you, and you cover it up, and you leave it for ages, and it comes out unbelievably tender. Oh my yeah, God. that's that's a very cool thing. Actually, I have a story that I I really can't tell you where it happened, but it was in the Middle East <laughs> somewhere, right? And it was a it was a gas oil separation plant, probably about not a very big one, maybe fifteen million barrels a day. No, hang on. Oh, no, 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 sorry. No, just, sorry, just sorry, sorry. No, no, 150,000 barrels a day. My bad. Okay. Oh, thank you. Oh, it's yeah, still, yeah. still fair size, right? And um, anyway, so the guys all go off and they wash their hands and, uh, well, they pray and wash their hands because you wash your hands at prayer time. And then they all come back in. And as they come back into the control room, a guy comes in with uh, a big silver tray with exactly that, the rice and the goat and everything on it. Mm. And everyone sits cross-legged on the floor of the control room and starts eating and they're doing the thing where they 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 pick up the the food in the right hand and they roll it into a ball and they eat with their hands and all of them are doing it so all of the operators are doing this and then an alarm goes off so the lead operator does what you'd expect he just leans around behind himself doesn't look finds the acknowledge button hits that so the alarm stops making a noise and carries on with his lunch <laughs> nice nice greeting <laughs> yeah we're busy emergencies can wait <laughs> yeah, that's all right. We'll still produ- yeah. produce 149,500 barrels. Yeah, we'll, we'll we'll produce a shortfall <laughs> tomorrow. It's all good. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, I I do remember that like uh, eating in a Bedouin tent, right, sitting cross-legged around the fire, the slow cooking. That was um, quite a unique experience. Mm. Uh, so. So where have you traveled, right? So I understand you're in the UAE, but do you have responsibility to go to various places in, in Europe and, and Africa and, and Asia and, and whatnot? Okay, so currently my responsibility is Africa. So I've done a lot more traveling in Africa than I had done before. I'd been to, I don't know, Angola, Nigeria, South Africa a few times, but but I've really been traveling around and, and seeing some of that. And, and the scale of Africa is amazing. I mean, if you... If you take China, because like the U.S. is big, right? Texas is big. So I'm going to use the U.S. and Texas as uh, as yardsticks. But if you take China, which is slightly bigger than the U.S., and the U.S., <laughs> and India, Mexico, Peru, France, Spain, and Germany, and you put them all into Africa, you've got enough space left to put India back in again. What? It's, yeah. It's unbelievably big. It's like it's more than three times the size of the U.S., so yeah, yeah you, again, you, you can't, you really can't generalize there. So North Africa feels the coastline of North Africa feels a bit like Europe because it's all greenery and rolling hills, and you've got the, the Mediterranean. Everyone speaks French, and then mm-hmm. then you need to go to site. Now Algeria is now the largest country in Africa, right? It used to be the second largest, but then they split Sudan in half. So how many times do you reckon you can fit Texas into Algeria? <laughs> right, three or four times, I would guess. Say again. Three or four. Yeah, exactly right. Actually, three point three point four, in fact. So you oh. couldn't have been more accurate. So wow. yeah, it's it's enormous, right? So I flew to Algiers, which is seven hours from Dubai, and then I had a flight to Iran, which is just up the coast, and that's about an hour's flight. And then I checked into a hotel, and in the morning I went to the airport to fly down to wherever I was going down to the interior. And the flight was I see my Somewhere, yeah, exactly. So somewhere like that, and um, it was actually 
uh, I think that's where we flew. We were going to fly through. Uh, the word "go to" going to kind of gives away the punchline. But yeah, so the plane was cancelled three hours after it should have taken off. No, no announcements in the meantime. So we went to the back to the hotel, came back in the morning. Yeah, that plane was cancelled as well. So they said, but you can fly somewhere else that's three hours flight away and then take a car for three hours and that'll drive you to where you need to be. But the only thing is, because I was a foreigner, I couldn't go because you can't drive in Algeria unless the army says so. And it takes them 48 hours to give you permission. So that night I flew back to Algiers. Then I had a meeting in the morning that was 20 minutes long, went to the airport, flew home. Another productive <laughs> week in North Africa. Nah, <laughs> yeah, and, and then... Like I went to Congo and Gabon, and and again, so I, I, like I said, it's all different, right? So Algeria feels European, but there's enormous bureaucracy, and of course they had a huge amount of unrest, which is why they are very careful about who goes where, and they're next door to Libya, which probably doesn't help with the situation. So Congo no. and Gabon, completely different, ex-French colonies. Again, they, everyone seems to speak French, but um, like I had to take a flight for a, a trip that's less than 100 miles and the story is the reason there isn't a road is that the guy who owns the airline won't let people build a road because he wants he wants people on his planes <laughs> and who's going to fly 90 miles when they can drive it so wow in, it's like in oklahoma that, city and tulsa just the opposite yeah <laughs> you can't you can't fly okay well you should be able to fly this one, right? So I'm in this country, and the I'm on the street where the national oil company is based. And this street is a dirt road that has holes in it that would literally swallow a sedan car. You'd need a tow truck to get it back out, and you'd probably need to fix the underside as well. So, And this is the street of the national oil company that generates the most money for the country. And so we're bumping along in a 4x4, and there's a guy walking towards us. Bold as brass, perfectly content, nothing out of the ordinary. ordinary. Oh, except that he's, he's stark naked. And that's the street where the national oil company is. So, so like I said, it's all different. Yeah. Uh, was he? Think, who wasn't uh, in your your meeting? Was he? Uh, <laughs> no. Although I was in Angola, <laughs> I was in Angola waiting to sit, waiting to go and see a, an oil company there. So we're in the the ground floor of the. Um, oil company building now we had to get through security my, my uh, colleague who works in angola and i we, we got through security where we had to present passports then we got to the front desk of the building where we had to show the id badges we'd got um from security and then we got to wait in the lobby for the guy to come down to meet us and while we're in there a hooker comes in and starts propositioning <laughs> us <laughs> so, how did you get in <laughs> hey, i mean she knows from buying yeah, that's her yeah. clientele, man. She's uh, she's swimming in the right pools, I guess. I guess. Anyways, yes. we should hide, we should have hired her as a salesperson. Jeez. <laughs> so, Andrew, yeah. I want to pivot a little bit towards kind of you know some of the things that we've done. We've you know obviously we've done some demo demo uh, podcasts talking about you know good demos, bad demos, and you know things like that. But one thing that because just because it occurred in a mutual meeting where we were, I wanted to kind of talk about. Um, and I don't want to say it happens more in certain places or not, but it, this one occurred while we were together in the Middle East. But dealing with the smartest guy in the room syndrome, there seems to be it happens in it happens here, it happens everywhere. But there's always that mm -hmm. one guy that he's smart, he's wants to be the smartest guy in the room, and he's going to make sure that everybody knows it. And it's usually 
in my case, at my expense or something like that. So mm-hmm. how do you handle that type of situation? I, and I just did, because you did handle it well, the one time we were there, I was one curious, uh, how do you get well, around that? Uh, so I, I think, yeah, I, I think that it probably happens here a lot because you get, you get expatriate consultants who have to be the smartest guy in the room or they, they, they don't have a job, right? So it's, it, that's how they see it. They have to be seen by the client as being unbelievably smarter. And, and I've handled, I might actually been the same guy on a different occasion. I handled that very badly, which is always a much more amusing story, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, um, yeah, uh, one of the things here is they they don't like they say they that's in general confrontation and disrespect are very much frowned upon and so you have to be unbelievably patient i found one thing with the middle east is that uh, it teaches you patience even better than having your own kids because you have to roll with stuff <laughs> man <laughs> but um yeah so you you can't you can't be disrespectful right you can't say look that's ridiculous. Why don't you wind your neck in while I tell the customer what's really going on? Because that's that's not going to work. Although that same guy, we were in a meeting and he spent the whole time telling us that our stuff didn't work or that we didn't have any references, that our sales guy didn't didn't show up enough. That I just unbelievable. Like we were with a VP of this national company, so it was a big deal meeting for us. And eventually, we're talking about this thing we call Big Loop that is like we think it's better than history matching it. If, if your model doesn't match your production, don't just apply a correction factor. Go back and find a better candidate model and propagate the uncertainties through all the, the subsequent model selection so you get a better idea of what's going to happen next. And we thought it was kind of cool. And he said, well, this is great. Every, every oil company in the world wants this. Why, why haven't I heard about it if you guys have been selling it for so long? At which point I said, well, in the last three years, I've met with your colleagues three times on these dates, and I've explained how this works. And apparently the reason that you haven't heard of it is that none of them told you because this company isn't interested in it. And that's when the meeting ended. And I was amazed we ever got a follow-on meeting, which was the one that <laughs> you were into. Yeah, yeah. I was, yeah, you know, I've been there at that meeting. That's, a, that's really fun stuff. I mean, I, I feel like, Tim, maybe we have Andrew back on another session just to talk sales related stuff, because you brought up a topic right there that's near and dear to me, which is I can get frustrated with prospective clients as well. But the truth is, that's usually an education issue on my part. I don't think that our expectation should be they need to know everything that we know or that they should. It's our job to continue to educate. But nonetheless, yeah. we, we all know that. Yeah. And I think um, if if you know going in that the guy is going to a guy who could be there in that one way is to write immediately defer to them and say, Hey, look, you know, you obviously, you know, a lot more about this than I do. We're here to just kind of show our little piece and just let them be perceived as the smartest guy in the room by me, as well as all the other people. And then we go on to present. This is one, one technique. Yeah. But, and I think I, I, I agree with you, but I think that the problem is that, and maybe it's, maybe it's an ego problem on my part, and I like I like what you said, Jeremy, about you gotta yeah, you, know, you gotta continue to educate them and not expect them to know everything. But I remember one time when I was when I was living in Austin and I went for a, a meeting in Houston and it was in a pretty big refinery and I was trying to sell this safety instrumented system. And the guy had been there running their safety systems for, you know, a really long time and he was the senior guy and everyone deferred to him. And I made because we had a new technology and I was really excited about it and I, I made a couple of comments about 
the new technology and he kind of said no it doesn't work that way in the real world and for <laughs> right. the first couple first couple of those i agree you just go okay fair enough I'll, I'll defer to your your experience and wisdom and then he said something that clearly wasn't true and um with hindsight now i'm a bit older and more mature i probably wouldn't do it again but i said well i'm sorry but i'm gonna have to call bullshit on that and then you can <laughs> <pin> drop right <laughs> but then we had a conversation about why and it turns out that in the end, he agreed with me, fortunately, and it turned into a really productive meeting. And the thing I'd say is that now you, you could get your ass handed to you doing that in Houston, but yeah, you, no. would, you would be kicked out of the meeting doing that in the Middle East. Wow. Yeah, for sure. You would never you would never even think of trying it. But <laughs> yeah, so it's it goes back to, I say, is that that respect and, and uh, confrontation? Yeah, we, we could probably go on forever on these little stories, especially the cultural difference. We didn't even get to the call for prayers or, uh, you know, a couple other little things we had in our notes. But I think we could definitely have Andrew back on and, and give us a little yeah. perspective. Yeah, I, I have a, a number of thoughts of ways we could we could do more with, with Andrew, right? Con- contrasting uh, business techniques, sales strategy, uh, experiences with, you know, somebody like, like us who's only been here. We could have a full session on that. I'd be, I'd be absolutely delighted. It's been a real pleasure. And uh, I've, I've, yeah, thank you so much for inviting me onto this. And, and uh, if I get back on again, that'd be even better. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much. And uh, spread the good word about tripping over the barrel to your, uh, to your homies over there in the Middle East. For sure. You can count on it. Thanks very thank much, you, guys. Andrew. Cheers.